Can you all hear me? Okay. I have no control over that. All right. Heavenly Father, we are grateful for this day. Lord, uh, we seek your face this day, Lord. I pray that uh, your word would go out in truth today. Lord, I pray that uh, you would use me. Lord, my purpose is to uh, just be a conduit, Lord, for your word. I pray that uh, you would touch our hearts, Lord, and that we would uh, see uh, the beautiful pictures that you have for us in this beautiful book of Ruth. Lord, thank you for letting us have this time in it, and we praise your holy name. In Jesus Christ, our Lord, amen. Can you all, I don't know if, I, if you're hearing me back there. We are, um, we just gotten into the fourth chapter of Ruth. And uh, so we were finishing chapter three last week. That was a great chapter, wasn't it? Just kind of uh, just gets you all uh, built up about what's going to happen. We saw uh, Ruth uh, going through with a plan and really trusting by faith, Lord, that the Lord would, uh, that he would be sovereign in this deal. And that, uh, you know, she's pretty vulnerable there at the feet of Boaz. And yet, just like the Lord, He responds with grace and, uh, and just a, a beautiful word t- uh, to Ruth. And He says that she's going to be redeemed. And, uh, you know, so we're just on top of the world with that. And, uh, but He says there's a closer Redeemer. And so that's going to need to be dealt with, this closer Redeemer. And that's where we finished chapter 3. We got into chapter 4. And as we did, uh, the point was made that you know, the pictures that we're, we're using uh, here by illustration in this book is uh, basically the Christian in their walk. Uh, we've been redeemed, and yet we still are being saved daily. And uh, the question is, where do we turn for that redemption? Do we look uh, back to the law that never could save us, or do we trust uh, in, in the Lord Jesus Christ? And... Uh, you know, once we're saved, how do we proceed? And so that's kind of uh, the way we've been looking at the book of Ruth. And, uh, and so I'm kind of going to be floating in and out of an application level and a storyline level in which we're looking at the, the, uh, the human level. So we read uh, verses uh, 3 and 4 last week, but I'm going to pick up with 3 and 4 and read through uh, verse 6 because they kind of all tie together. So let me do that. Ro- uh, Ruth chapter 4, verses Three through six. Then he, Boaz, said to the closest relative, Naomi, who has come back from the land of Moab, has to sell, essentially had to sell, the piece of land which belonged to our brother Elimelech. So I thought to inform you, saying, Buy it before those who are sitting here and before the elders. Remember, he had gathered ten elders, the elders of the people. And if you will redeem it, redeem it. But if not, tell me that I may know. For there is no one but you to redeem it, and I am after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, On the day that you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you must also acquire Ruth the Moabitess, the widow of the deceased, in order to raise up the name of the deceased on his inheritance. The closest relative said, I cannot redeem it for myself because... It would jeopardize my own inheritance. Redeem it for yourself. 
you may have my right of redemption, for I cannot redeem it. So then back just on the human level, at the, that, that verse 4 of chapter uh, 4, you know, you could almost see as Boaz is laying out this great deal of basically it's property. Uh, Naomi is not of childbearing age, and so taking care of her would be probably a minimal expense uh, for this kinsman redeemer and, and the, the value of the property and what it could bring forth uh, and, and uh, produce was, was of, of great value to him. You know, you can almost see him just kind of slam his hand down on the table, right? I mean, who wouldn't? And then we come to that next verse, and I almost see Boaz putting his hand on top of the Redeemer's hand saying, now, wait a minute, there's something else you need to know. Because Boaz has rolled out the information in parcels. He says, not so fast. There's this little matter of Naomi's daughter-in-law, the Moabite. Emphasis on Moabite. The widow of Malon. And uh, the woman who is, who is of childbearing age. Uh, now the relative says he cannot redeem the property. And it's because of this person. It's because of Ruth. Because he'd have to continue Elimelech and uh, Malon's family name through her. And thereby, it says, to jeopardize his own inheritance. You know, possibly the man was already married. He may have had sons. And, you know, this just to do so would compromise his inheritance. It would, it would otherwise uh, pull him down or lessen his own inheritance that he planned to leave. But uh, this particular word that's used here in the verse, jeopardize, some translations will, tr- uh, will state mar. It comes from a root a Hebrew word that is used almost 150 times in the Old Testament, but this particular iteration is only used six times here and five other places. In all five other places, the word is translated destroy. It would destroy my inheritance. Now, staying on the human level, because Boaz proceeded by rolling out the situation in two parts, not giving all the information at once, I think he was rather smart because he now had the closer redeemer on record that before the elders and before the people, that he could afford the property. The cost of the property is not the problem. Ruth was the deal breaker in this deal. And so that could, you know, potentially keep him from, uh, you know, if he had everything at once, he might have said, well, I don't have all the money together right now. He could wait and see. Maybe Ruth would get married in the meantime, and then he could come back, oh, I've now suddenly gotten the money for the purchase. So uh, by doing the way... uh, Boaz did, I think it was rather uh, smart. Nothing wrong with it, but it was good in the way that he did it. Any comments on that? Yeah. That's not the way they did it. So this was, this was going to be a legal matter. So he goes to the, the city gate is the courthouse, and the elders are there for a purpose. And they hang around out there, actually, uh, in case something like this comes up. Well, this is like uh, w- what they're all about, is to be in and to listen on, on this transaction and to make sure everything is above board. Well, everything he's right. 
It's going to all be legal. There'll be no question about it. And so uh, we see the, yes? Yes, they could, they, would have, they could have happened here, yes. Um, so we see that there's, there's some sort of a missing ingredient between these two possible redeemers. There's something that Boaz has that the kinsman, the near kinsman does not have. Does anybody see what that is? Think, Paul? I think it's fair because he trusted, I, I think he felt that Ruth was really going to be his wife. Right. He, he set it up so that he would decline it. Right. And then, I mean, he kind of, it just felt like he knew. You say it's faith and, and that he would be trusting the Lord to give out the information this way. Yes, Denise. Um, was Boaz, I don't think Boaz was already married, was he? We're not told that. We're not told that of either man. Yes, Catchy. Yes, I believe that. I believe that's the missing ingredient here, is love. Tom, huge, huge hindrance. He is stressed. He puts that before her. <laughs> he wants to make this as truthful, but he wants it to, to make it as unattractive as possible to a Jewish man. Yes, Lugie. Absolutely. It's no, it's no secret. So I think at that point, like, her, her reputation would have preceded her. So either Mr. Unknown has no idea who Ruth is, which could be, but then at the same time, that would confuse me if he's involved in this business deal, but he's, all, he's also there but doesn't know who this lady is. I think that he's looking first to his own inheritance. He's got, he's got a package that he's been working on. His IRA is all built up, and he doesn't really want to share it. And this is, where, this is where sacrifice, as you've said before, Jeff, this is where the sacrifice comes into it. But that sacrifice is made doable because of the love and the grace. And he doesn't have that, for, for whether he knows her reputation or not. I'll tell you what, the Moabite part is a big deal, though, because these were enemies of Israel. These were a people that came out of scandal, and, uh, you know, this was representative of the world. You know, they were pagans. They attacked. You know, there's a long history of, of uh, trouble between these two peoples. Yes? The fact that he wasn't worried about, Boaz was not worried about the hair. That kind of leads me to think in the context of Jesus that, that uh, his nearest relative maybe does have a family. And this is going to complicate things. It wouldn't complicate things for Boaz. Yes. But the, the, the point for me is that the way he rolled it out, it was no uh, question about his ability, his, his uh, capability to, to fund the property. Jeff? I think that what I see 
saw in her, whether she was beautiful on the exterior or not, she was clearly beautiful in character. And I think we see in Boaz's character that he would not have just gone after a beautiful Moabite woman. He would have gone, he, he only was attracted to, to Ruth because he saw this character in her that he was willing to, even a Moabite woman, to pursue her. So I, I think that that whole Moabite thing is, is interesting. Um, and and it, it, I, obviously it puts off the, the uh, nearer kinsman. Um, but Boaz, and, and of course we see, you know, in the genealogy of Jesus, here he is, here she is. That's right. You know, That's so right. This amazing, beautiful amazing. You know, on the, and so on the practical level, the application level, excuse me, uh, we see that this is true also of us, the persons that we are. The problem is not the law. It's not for the law. We're, we're, uh, you know, the law, I've, we've already looked at it. It's perfect and holy. We're the ones that are not perfect and holy. The law even portrays the character of God. But the law cannot redeem us. It cannot free us from the penalty of the law of, of sin or the power of sin because to do so would compromise the law so much that it would destroy the standard that it represents if it, ha if, if it compromised itself to make us redeemable. We can't fulfill the law. The law does not make somebody righteous. Actually, it proves that you're not. Or in the case of Jesus, it proves that you are. Nothing wrong with the law, but something seriously wrong with us. Um, and by that, you know, I mean our, sinful, our sinful nature, you know, our flesh, our soul, whatever you want to call it. Uh, there's something about us that needs redeeming all, every day, all day long, after we're saved. Um, there was only one Redeemer for Ruth, and it's Boaz. And likewise, there's only one Redeemer for us, and it's Jesus Christ. This is what Paul discovers in Romans chapter 7. If you ever feel like you're just spinning your wheels and getting nowhere in your Christian life, you should go to, to Romans chapter 7 and see what Paul writes as a believer in that chapter. He, he discovers that, you know, he doesn't just have a problem, but that he is the problem himself. And there's only one answer. Let me, let me uh, pull up Romans 7 verses 21 through 25. This is Paul writing. So I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, that is my saved spirit, being uh, I delight in God's law. But I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. He is the answer. But, you know, it's important to keep these things in balance as we, as we continue to go through all this. And, and by that I mean the fact that we have been redeemed, the fact that we, we have been saved. We've, we've seen scripture that talked about us being freed from the law. That has to be kept in balance because there is a risk uh, here of going into one of two extremes. Major Ian Thomas understood that one of the ways that the Bible defines sin is independence. So we need to understand that being freed from the law doesn't mean that right and wrong no longer exist. 
we can't just walk around, we can't just live this Christian life walking after our flesh. God cares, God cares about how we live. You know, we looked at this earlier with Ruth when she got up from uh, lunch and went directly back into the field. And I said that she was not taking grace in vain. And there's a risk of taking God's grace in vain. We are to be dependent upon Him, upon Jesus, the only one that could ever save us and keeps on saving us in this current life. And there's another extreme, and that is taking uh, Jesus' commandments in the New Testament and to begin reading them in the same way that the Pharisees did with the, the Old Testament law. What do I mean by that? Listen to Jesus in John 15. He says, If you keep my commandments, I will remain in you. Excuse me. If you keep my commandments, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and remain in His love. You know, if we take this admonition and with a, just a purely legalist mindset, it means that unless I do every command in the New Testament exactly right, then I, I risk losing the love of Christ. And this puts a believer right back under the law, doesn't it? So we need to remember what Jesus said earlier in that same passage. In verse 5, He said, I'm the vine, you are the branches. The one who remains in me and I in him will bear much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Apart from Christ, we can do nothing. That includes all the New Testament commandments. You know, therefore, being freed from that law is not lawlessness or independence. And it's not trusting in our, own, in our own efforts to perform. That's what Major Thomas would call Christians without Christ. It's depending on Jesus, the only one who ever lived the life that completely pleased God. Any comments? Okay, we'll move on. Uh, Ruth, let's go to verses 7 through 8. Now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning the redemption and exchange of land to confirm any matter. A man removed his sandal and gave it to another, and this was the manner of attestation in Israel. So the closest relative said to Boaz, Buy it for yourself, and he removed his sandal. So the close relative, he cannot redeem Ruth. And in the same way, the law does not redeem us, past, present, or future. And we know that no amount of self-effort or good works can ever change that. We see that there's one Redeemer, Boaz, and he's a picture of Christ, who by grace and love was willing to redeem Ruth. And Christ is willing to redeem us. What about this deal with the sandal? One reason I think it's in here is because uh, this was a custom probably that was no longer in practice. And we're being told that the book is written sometime after the events of the book. And so there's a necessity to explain what this custom was. Uh, but I think more importantly, there's a symbolism that the custom uh, re represents. Understanding that is going to give us another illustration of what we've already been talking about. So it was in that day that walking over a property in your sandals meant that you had the right to possess it. When the close relative removed his sandal and gave it to Boaz, it meant he relinquished his right to purchase, and he gave the right to Boaz. So by illustration then, 
anyone, for anyone who's placed their trust in Jesus, has been redeemed by Jesus, the law has no more right to walk over you. It has no more right to condemn you. Uh, this is a firm truth. Let's go back to Romans again, chapter 8, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life, that's the gospel that set us free, has set you free from the law of sin and death, which is a phrase for the Old Testament law. So we are not under the law in our salvation, and we're not under the law in our daily walk. But that doesn't make us lawless. Um, Let's keep going because I think this will help clear some things. Let's go through uh, verses 9 and 10. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, You are witnesses today that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilion and Malon. Moreover, I have acquired Ruth the Moabitess, the widow of Malon, to be my wife in order to raise up the name of the deceased on his inheritance so that the name of the deceased will not be cut off from his brothers or from the court of his birthplace. Your witnesses today. How about these 10 elders? Yes, Kevin. Go ahead. So to go back to the sandals, I'm, I'm, I'm looking at that, and there's a section in Deuteronomy 25 uh-huh. that talks about the preserving of the family line. That's a different. The of the sandal. Yeah. And it's about Leverite marriage. That's right. Right? And, um, and it says the elders of the city will summon him to speak. If he persists and says, I do not want to marry then his sister-in-law will go up to him inside of the elders, remove his sandals from his foot, spit in his face. Then she will declare, this is what is done to a man right. who will not build up his family. And in Matthew, or I'm sorry, Luke 20, it kind of connects some of this stuff. Because if I, when I think of it, I think back to the first person that I think of who removed his sandals, and it's when God comes to Moses at the burning bush. Yes. And it's very interesting because that's the way Jesus responds. When the Sadducees come to come to him and ask about the marriage and Leverite marriage and the seven women, right? Yeah. And he explains that Moses even indicated in the passage about the burning bush that the dead are raised, where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Yes. He is not the God of the dead, but the God of living. the living, because because all are living to him. And I think it kind of explains this removal of the sandal thing and showing that God is the only one who's living who can redeem the people of God. You know? Mm-hmm. That, that a dead... I, I, I right, think it's, he, again, this picture of the law and the gospel and that it's only God. Yes. Because he's the only perfect one who can keep the law. But also he's the only living one who can redeem us. He is the God of the living. He's a living God of the living. Right. Well... That's good. That's all good. No, no, it's good. But like that, that section also explains why his name is given. Because verse ten says, "In Israel, his name shall be called the house of him whose sandal is removed." Exactly. Yeah. So basically, like that's the part where like your name gets redacted. So that's why I suspect his name isn't listed here. His name isn't listed at the beginning of chapter four. Uh, okay. Later on, he refuses. Yeah. But don't don't forget this is this is concerning the possession of land. This is not the Leverett marriage that that they were dealing with at this point. Ruth, Ruth, Ruth would have to come up. She'd actually have to spit in his face, into the, the nearer kinsman's face. But this was a, uh, a, a purchase 
she's going to be redeemed. And she actually, the one she's asked to redeem is going to redeem her. So you don't, it's not challenging that one that won't, won't fulfill his duty. He had a right, he had a, he had a positional duty ahead of Boaz, but she had already chosen Boaz as well. So this was pertaining to that property. And, and, and that, as I said, is a custom. It's not a law. You're not going to find it written down, uh, but in, you know, traditional Jewish writings. Okay? All right. Um, so let's go to the ten elders. Ten elders. And uh, so they've been listening to this transaction. They and the people have been. Let me ask this. Can they represent anything in our, rep- in our relationship with Jesus? Uh, you know, think about it. They did not make any decision here, and they did not make any judgment. They were there for one purpose, and that was to witness. And they witnessed two things. They witnessed that um, the nearer kinsman could not redeem, and they witnessed that Boaz could redeem. Witnesses are very important in case there's ever a breach of contract. You have witnesses, uh, and that carries over into our judicial system as well. Any ideas there for the ten elders? Any representation? Is there any representation? That's right. That's good. I may be, I may be reading a little more into this, but uh, I was reminded, don't laugh, of a YouTube a YouTube channel I watch, and from time to time it's called Living Waters. It's started by a Jewish Christian guy from New Zealand named Ray Comfort, and I thought I saw a parallel here. Um, he has quite an evangelistic ministry. And, uh, and he gives the gospel to, to people on the street all the time. He begins with the Ten Commandments. And he asks people who think they're honest and good how, how well they're doing, you know, how, how they're going to do when it comes to their judgment. And so he goes through the Ten Commandments with them. He usually goes through about the first four, and nobody makes it beyond anything. You know, and, he do, and, he, and in that process, he's using those Ten Commandments. You know, they're a summary of the moral law of God, and they are a... They're a reflection of the character of God, and, and they reflect back to us our inability. They're like a mirror, showing us that we can't do it. And he uses it to bear witness for, uh, that they cannot be saved by that law. He hasn't actually admitted most times. And uh, they further witness, though, that Jesus is, because he did fulfill the law, that he's able to pay our sin debt. He is righteous. The law revealed his righteousness. It didn't give it to him. And we see this concept uh, also in, uh, in Galatians uh, chapter 3, verses 23 through 24, where the passage talks about the law being our, teeter, uh, our teacher or our tutor, which is an essentially a witnessing to us. So Galatians 3, verses 23 and 24, let me just read. But faith, but before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law, being shut up to the faith, which was later to be revealed. Therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. Any other comments? Any comments? I like that analogy. You like that? Uh, you know, there are ten of them. So I thought, what do you have, Rob? There has been records, not just oral tradition, because we know that Matthew did
somewhere in, there's just a note, and it's very old, and you know, he goes through the records, and boom, uh, that was done, and he's in the Messiah's that's, you know, and when Jesus presented himself as the Messiah, those records were readily available. Anybody that wanted to go look at them, they were in the temple. He had complete and legal uh, right for kingship, for messiahship. He, he was through the line, Jeff. You know, and we talked about it. So you're talking about this faith to proceed. And we, we talked about this in like the first or second lesson, how easy, how much easier it is to look backward in faith than forward in faith. And we see what has been done and we wonder what will be done. And that's what faith is about. We could talk about faith here at the end if we have any time as well. But it's amazing. Um, you know, so let's, uh, let's read on. We're, we're going to get through. Uh, all the people, this is verses 11 through 13, all the people who were in the court and the el elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who's coming into your home like Rachel and Leah, both of whom built the house of Israel. And may he achieve wealth in Ephrathah and become famous in Bethlehem. Moreover, may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar, Tamar bore to Judah through the offspring which the Lord will give you by this young woman. So Boaz took Ruth, and, became, and she became his wife, and he went into her, and the Lord enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. You know, you can almost hear the crowd bursting into celebration uh, at this, and they give a statement over Boaz and a blessing as well for offspring. This book has been amazing. If you, if you just follow the literary method with it, it's, you know, the first chapter... Five verses, ten years, and three funerals. Second chapter, one day in a barley field. Third chapter, one evening at the, uh, at the threshing floor. Fourth chapter, one verse, a marriage and a baby. But it's held our attention. It's been beautiful. I think that also in verse 13, I love the fact that it says, the Lord, it is the Lord who enabled Ruth to conceive. And this is the second of two places in the book of Ruth where we see the Lord is given direct credit for intervening. And I believe it's very intentional. Uh, I, put them, I, put, I took both of those uh, verses where it talks about the Lord and put them up. It was uh, Ruth chapter 1 verse 6 and Ruth verse, four, uh, verse 13 of chapter 4 we just read. Ruth 1 6, Then she arose with her daughters-in-law that she might return to the land of Moab, speaking of Naomi, for she heard in the land of Moab, that the Lord had visited His people in giving them food. And then uh, verse 13, 
of chapter 4. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife, and he went into her. And the Lord enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. And remember the two needs that we, we talked about back in chapter 2 when they arrived, she, uh, Ruth and Naomi, to Bethlehem. They needed food and family. God is the one that provided both of those. Both of those. He is indeed the God who supplies. You know, Ruth, excuse me, Naomi called, she used the title for, uh, of him, Almighty, when she was coming back in uh, to Bethlehem with, Naomi, with uh, Ruth. Naomi used the title Almighty. And that is the God of provision. We see that he's done. So the blessing that the crowd gives, it's, it's one for fertility. And we have, uh, interestingly, uh, Rachel and Leah. Now, though Rachel and Leah are remembered as the building, building the house of Israel with the 12 sons, you, know, you, you also remember that each of them had a period of barrenness, right? Both Leah and Rachel. Leah uh, at the end and Rachel at the beginning. And, you know, and then for years, we have Ruth married, living down in Moab, married to Malon, and she never conceived. She was barren, which meant that she was still eligible for the Leverett Law. If she'd had a child, none of this would have, would have had meaning. And so we see then... Uh, in her marriage to Boaz, that we see the blessing of God. You remember the blessing that Boaz spoke over Ruth when he first met her? Back in chapter 2, verse 12, and he said, May the Lord reward you. Listen to Psalm 127.3, verse 3, excuse me. Behold, children are a gift of the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. And I believe that Boaz is pretty stoked himself. You know, he's an older guy, but don't you know that he's thrilled now to be having this beautiful person, this beautiful character and, and graceful person to be living his life with? Consider uh, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who, for the joy set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Let's keep going. Ruth chapter 4, verses 14 and 15. Then the women said to Naomi, so she's now have, she now has women gathered around her, Blessed is the Lord, who's not left you without a Redeemer today, and may His name become famous in Israel. May He also be to you a restorer of life and a sustainer of your old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you, that's the first time the word love is used, is better to you than seven sons. And she has given you, and she has given birth to him. This is a huge statement, this blessing from the, from the women over Naomi. Uh, in that culture, we know that, that sons were the valued ones, right? But these women recognized Ruth and that she had taken the place of a son for Naomi. But she was better than seven sons. You know, we, we, you could even say that Ruth was the sevenfold daughter-in-law of Naomi. You know how many times that she's called a daughter-in-law a daughter-in-law in the book? Seven times. Seven times. And she gives birth to Obed, who they're calling Naomi's redeemer, as well as a restorer of her life and a sustainer. Remember what J Jesus said in John chapter 10. He said, 
I have come that they may have life and have it abundantly. And Obed was Naomi's redeemer in one sense because he could carry on the family name. In the next verses that we read, we'll see that the women call him Naomi's son. Pretty incredible, truly grace. Especially when you consider technically Naomi is not even his grandmother, is she? Not by blood. But in the larger sense, greatness is going to come through this line. The greatest king of Israel, David. And one day, this family line is going to give the world the true redeemer, Jesus Christ. Any comments? Yeah, there's two, like the fact that the crowd called out Tamar, who is the Gentile. I was hoping you wouldn't go there, Louie. Unknowingly. Unknowingly. Yes. But I, but I love that because it's very much like they, they wouldn't bring up this Gentile who has been welcomed into a Gentile unless they were trying to show that she is truly welcome. It's not just something where they're okay. like, oh, sketchy. Did you no, both right. Married? Does everybody know what Lugie's talking about that, here that with regard? referring to that whole kinsman-redeemer deal with Judah because they clearly knew that too. You know, the... Well, it was, it was botched twice. Yeah. He had three sons, uh, and one was put to death, and the other wouldn't do his thing. And, uh, and so into, she, it's a, she, was, she disguised herself as a prostitute and goes into Judah. and has. I think it's more important to focus on Gentile people, Gentile women coming into the line of Christ. She's a Canaanite. Rahab is a Canaanite, uh, Ruth is a Moabite, and Bathsheba is a Hittite. Yeah. And we see these women mentioned by name in the lineage of Christ. And, I, and I think the, the kinsman-redeemer part is more of something that it's once again where people are speaking something with a deeper meaning that they don't necessarily recognize. Because it's the same further on down when you read in verse 14. They're speaking of it about Naomi concerning Obed, who's a baby. But you can read these verses, and the application also applies to Jesus. Yeah. When it talks about, blessed is the Lord who has not left you without a redeemer today, and may his name become famous in Israel. All right? Yeah, like, I think, I so think, I think that's, that's... From the beginning, that's what it's pointing to all along. Is yeah. Christ. They don't fully know what they're saying. The right, Bible. which yeah. is one of the myriad yeah. of illustrations and types that are throughout this book in layers and layers and layers. Yes, but it's all good. And I think, including these... You know, God had a chosen people, and I mean chosen. He didn't go pick a nation. He made a nation, right? So nobody has the pride of claiming to be the nation chosen by God. He made that nation. So there's, there's no claim. There's no pride in it. Everything is from God. And yet, in that chosen people, he pulls in. He's telling the church, look, I can pull in from the world. I can pull Gentiles in. You have a place in, in, in my salvation. And I think that's what he's clear. And not only that, you're going to see the ugly side of sin in the process. And I can still look past that when you, when you trust in me. Your past matters no more when you come to Christ. Very good. I was hoping we wouldn't go there. But I should have figured. <laughs> okay, so I'm going to read the last uh, verses, 16 through 22. Then Naomi took the child... And laid him in her lap and became his nurse. 
The neighbor women gave him a name saying, a son has been born to Naomi. How about that? So they named him Obed. He's the father of Jesse, the father of David. These are the generations of Perez. To Perez was born Hezron, and to Hezron was born Ram, and to Ram Amenadab, and to Amenadab was born Nashon, and to Nashon Salmon, and to Salmon was born Boaz, and to Boaz Obed, and to Obed was born Jesse, and to Jesse David. I don't you know about y'all, but I think this has been a fantastic book. Uh, it's it, uh, the, the love story on its own, and in so many levels. We have seen, we've seen repentance back in chapter 1 when Naomi, Naomi gets up, pulls herself up, and goes on back in to where the Lord is blessed. We see redemption and we see restoration. God blessed and restored Naomi. Did you notice here in the very last verses how the, the focus shifts back to Naomi? where it began in the first part of, of chapter 1. She goes from a backslidden believer, blaming God, to a blessed and a famous mother in Israel. She goes from bitterness to smiles. And then in Ruth, in the person of Ruth, what a life, what a, what a person to look at. Grace and humility, dedication and character. And she goes from a widow Gentile. She trusts in the Lord God of Israel. And she becomes a mother in the line that leads to the humanity of Christ. Yes. Right. We we actually did talk about that back uh, in chapter one, but y'all weren't here that week. Yes, because they were, she was seeing something in that family, and we, we, we've talked about that with light against dark and, and, and life against death, and something, even, you know, if they were not following the Lord uh, in faith, they still uh, ha attracted uh, Ruth to their God, and she trusted in Him. Boaz, we've seen also this prefigurement of Christ, and how he operates, a man of God, a man of valor, a man of honor who proceeds legally. Everyone in this room who is saved, you're saved legally, absolutely legally. You're saved out of love and grace, but it was done legally. No, no steps uh, were avoided. You know, we have a legal claim to all that God has given us. And... Uh, that's how He can make us just and, and, and give us justification. He can lift us up to the heavenlies, all those things. We don't need to be ashamed. We, he gives it all to us right off the start. But with the, I think that the, with the way we've approached the book is to see that in this life that we're living, we don't need to fall back on things that never could save us. We trust it in Christ, and He is there for us to trust in Him now. Uh, you know, I've been reading a lot of... of uh, uh, Major Ian Thomas has worked. He's got a book called The Indwelling Christ uh, Life. It's really, really good. And uh, it's been working on me because, you know, it's like, how do you do this? How do you do it? You know, you know, you do it moment by moment, day by day. Some days aren't so good for me. But, you know, I want to avail myself. I want to give him access to my soul to do what needs to be done. That's all I've got. This has been an honor to teach. 
and uh, I've been blessed immensely by it. Um, any, any other comments that you'd like to make? Yes. Famine? Of the famine, you mean? It is, it is. And I think you're, you're talking about the sovereignty of God. And it, you know, we see it in two verses specifically, but it's, it's in every verse, every verse, it's there. Jeff, will you close this, please?
Amen. All right. Thanks, Jeff. You're welcome.